Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Journalist, editor, and culture critic Yvette Dion has written both a memoir and a scathing indictment of fat phobia, which is everywhere in TV and film, in classrooms and medical offices. Dion contends with heart failure and a rare type of hypertension, conditions that doctors overlooked because of her size. She joins us to talk about how we can begin to dismantle society's deep prejudices against fat people and how self-love counters fat phobia. Join us. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Yvette Dion's new essay collection makes it clear the world isn't safe for fat people, especially not fat black women. And we as a society seem determined to keep it that way. Through personal stories and empirical data, Dion shows how pervasive and damaging fat phobia is. And by recognizing and working through her own internalized bias, she finds a pathway toward a world without fat phobia and signs that we're on it. Her essay collection is called Weightless, Making Space for My Resilient Body and Soul. Yvette Dion, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, it's really an honor for us to have you. There's this story that you share early on, kind of tucked into the intro that I just found really touching about how your father would let you read aloud to him while he was driving you to school. Could you tell that story? I would love to. So I was always a really avid reader. I learned to read through actually Hooked on Phonics. And so when my father would take me to school in the mornings, he would allow me to read to him. So anything that I chose, it didn't matter if it was a Nancy Drew mystery or the Babysitter's Club, he would allow me to read books out loud to him and then actually pepper him with questions about <laughs> what, what it was that we had read. And he would always remind me before we got out of the car to put a bookmark there so that when he would take me the next morning, I could then read aloud to him again. Yeah, you you described that as him trying to create an invisible force field around you or sort of an impenetrable shell. Do you think he was conscious that he was doing that? Honestly, no. 
because so much of what was happening to me outside of my home, so in school, um, among my teachers, among my peers, a lot of it were things that I kept pretty, pretty close to the vest. In fact, my parents didn't know a lot of what had happened to me until they read the book. So he Mm -hmm. had no idea how much having those experiences with him in the morning imbued me with a sense of confidence until now. Yeah, you say you'd pepper him with questions to make sure he was paying attention. What did that do? What did that time in the car give you? It gave me a sense of my voice mattering, that what I said and what I chose and what I read mattered, and that there was someone who was paying attention to that. So I often felt both hyper-visible and invisible in school at the same time. And so my dad paying that keen attention to me, even for that 20 to 30 minute drive, it meant everything to me because it made me feel like I mattered. Yeah, and that I I would imagine reading aloud, using your voice, hearing him respond to you. I think you say that, you know, he would patiently, yes, let you pepper him with questions. He would answer them. Uh, It really gave you a sense that you had a voice um, that was meant to say something. And I've kind of heard you say similar things about that inspiring weightless too. For a long time, you've been a culture critic, you've written articles, but you didn't think that you had a book. Um, and I'm wondering if if that is something that changed for you or how that changed for you where you did decide, you know what, I do have something to say. I realized how insidious fat phobia is after my diagnosis. Mm. And so it wasn't until that point that I realized, okay, I need to put this in permanent form And the book is the perfect way to do it. And it's a perfect way to really connect the dots as well. So it's not just me having these individual experiences, but I really want to be intentional about bringing in a chorus of voices who have had similar experiences to really show people that this is a system. It's not just something that's impacting me personally, but it impacts scores of people every day. And a book was a perfect way to do that just because of the the medium of it and the form format of it, especially an essay collection, it allowed me to do it in a more fluid way than, say, an article. It starts with the sentence, I am in heart failure, which is such a, a powerful opening and a sentence that you say still sounds surreal to you. Can you tell us the story of trying to get to that diagnosis? Absolutely. So in 2016, I began having symptoms that now I know are cardiac symptoms. So my ankles were swelling. I was short of breath all of the time. My back would hurt. I was having really what I thought at the time was really rampant anxiety where my heart would pound and pound and pound. And there didn't seem to be an explanation for that. So I went to the doctor and the doctor took all of my symptoms and said, well, you're obese and if you lose weight, you'll feel better. And so I left that doctor's office feeling really discouraged. I went to a different doctor who said, oh, well, maybe it's an iron deficiency. Maybe it's a vitamin D deficiency. So he prescribed me medication, but I still wasn't feeling better. And then in 2019, I went to um, the doctor because I thought I was having an asthma attack. And actually, my father was the person who told me to go and said, something is wrong. You need to go. 
and they listened to my lungs. They gave me a professional grade albuterol treatment, which is common for people with asthma to take, but my lungs still weren't expanding and opening. And at that point, the doctor said, we need to refer you to a cardiologist. We think there's something wrong with your heart. And so I went to the cardiologist. Um, I had what they call an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. And it was at that time that they discovered I was in heart failure. And my heart at that time on the left side was working at 16%. Wow. And this is, you started to see the doctor for this in 2016 and didn't get an accurate diagnosis until 2019. Yes. Can you talk about um, how contending with heart failure and also hypertension um, has impacted your life? It changed my life overnight, literally. Overnight, I went from having symptoms but being what we consider in our society relatively healthy to being in dire health. I was, to be very clear, very close to death when your heart is working at 16%. And so I was immediately put on a cocktail of medications designed to do all sorts of things to the body, but mostly designed to preserve the heart. And so as a consequence of taking those medications, I started experiencing a range of of side effects from my body being so cold even now that my body cannot regulate its own temperature. So I'm always too hot or too cold to developing really severe body cramps. Um, to not being able to go outside when it's too hot because my body will overheat and I will pass out, Um, to now having to be on a really, really strict sodium and liquid restriction, um, which allows the heart, it gives the heart its best chance to recover. You've explained that the conditions you suffered were not caused by your size, but overlooked because of your size. Do you ever think about, had you gotten a diagnosis earlier, that the things that you're facing now wouldn't have been quite as severe? Or do you try not to think about that? I think about it sometimes, of course, because I'm human. Um, I try my best not to think about it, but of course I do. And I think what comes back to me over and over again is, although my conditions were caught later than they should have been, I'm really grateful that they were, because had they not been, there's no telling what could have happened, or if even if I would have survived. So I feel most grateful to have finally gotten a doctor who listened to me and took my concerns seriously. How do you contend with the overlap of medical mistreatment, not only because of your size, but because of your race? I feel a deep sadness because I think a lot about how fortunate I am to have the resources to go to the doctor frequently. My care is very, very expensive. I'm actually having a procedure tomorrow that's going to cost me nearly $5,000 to have done. And so I'm, I am deeply sad that you have to be almost in my tax bracket to afford a cardiologist, to afford a pulmonologist, to have really good health care, to get the care that you need. And sometimes I go down that dark path of thinking about if I, if I were not in this situation and if I did not have these resources, what would have happened to me? And I think about so many other people 
who haven't been as fortunate as I have been and have likely lost their lives because they're being overlooked by doctors because of their class status or their size or their race. How many people have lost their lives because of that bias? Right. When it's in the medical system, it is literally your life depending frequently on the care that you get. At the same time, though, one of the quotes that has been pulled out of your book frequently is, my body has not betrayed me. It has continued rebounding against all odds. It is a body that others map their expectations on, but it has never let me down. How did your diagnosis change your relationship with your body or maybe reframe it in some way? It completely changed my relationship with my body. I say now that my body and I are in a marriage What I learned in going through this is that for a long time, my body was trying to warn me that something was wrong. And because I was so disconnected from my body, and I knew I was in a body, but I didn't pay all that much attention to it, which I imagine is common for people in their 20s and their early teens particularly, because you're taught that at that age, you're perfectly healthy, nothing can go wrong. So I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to my body, but this diagnosis made me pay attention to everything. I pay attention to every ache and every pain and everything that is happening in my body because they really are messages to me and to my brain as to whether or not I'm getting better. And so this diagnosis made me have that sort of relationship, which I am extremely grateful for because it's because of that that I'm alive. We're talking with Yvette Dion about fat phobia, her experience with it in our medical system. And we'll talk more about how it's embedded in our culture. Yvette Dion is a journalist, a pop culture critic. Her new book is Weightless, Making Space for My Resilient Body and Soul. Dion also has a middle grade nonfiction book called We Climb, Black Women's Battle for the Ballot Box, which was nominated for a National Book Award. What do you want to ask Yvette Dion? Do her stories resonate with you? Have you experienced fat shaming or fat phobia? And how do you think we, our institutions, need to change to counter it? You can email forum at kqed.org, post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Tomorrow we'll be taking stock of the toll of these relentless and deadly storms hitting California. And if you want to tell us how you've been impacted, feel free to email forum at kqed.org. Today we're talking about how the insidiousness of fat phobia can make the world unsafe for fat people and why it's been so hard to make it safer. What can be done? And we're hearing about that with Yvette Dion, who's calling out fat phobia, fat shaming, and sizeism that pervades our society. You, our listeners, can share your thoughts, too, by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqed forum, or by calling 866-733-6786. This listener tweets, I've both resisted fat shaming and am still trying to lose weight. As cruel social pressure, it is bad, but so is the worsening of my diabetes, too, and the continued degradation of my hip, knee, and ankle joints, which evolved to take no more than around 30 kilograms each. I uh, I know, Yvette, that you, you talk about how, yes, there are risks related to extra weight, but also that fatness is often not the result of, or, or health problems that people are facing are not the result of fatness, which is what your experience and diagnosis was all about, right? Yes, that's right. And so there are now scores of doctors and researchers and scientists who are saying that obesity is what they call this disease. And obesity as an illness is not as easy as simply dieting and exercising. It's literally a brain disease wherein your brain and your stomach are not communicating with one another. And so there... Yvette, I think we lost you for just a moment there on your Comrex. You were, you were talking about how the, the brain and the stomach communicating with each other, that that can get tangled. And that's right. when you dropped out. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're not communicating well. And so now you have doctors who are starting to research what they call obesity as a disease and recognizing how complicated and layered it is. Yes. But at the same time, also, as you point out numerous times, we just live in a society with a whole range of bodies, a whole range of sizes. <laughs> and right. yeah, and, and this listener tweets, there are some risks from extra weight. However, fat shaming does not help anyone. I don't understand why this continues. Why is hatred of fat still acceptable? I don't know if you wanted to respond to that. I would gladly respond to that. I say all the time, there are no social consequences for being fat phobic or shaming fat people. You can take photos of fat people and poke fun at them. You can make fat jokes and there are no consequences for that. And so it's allowed to still persist in our society in a way that say racism or outright racism is not. Hmm. So it's one of those areas that still has not been identified as one where socially it is shunned to be able to express it um, or looked down upon in the ways that we are at least approaching the other isms um, like sexism or racism. You know, one of the things you talk about is how the experience of humiliation, humiliation as a weapon or how um, it is basically implemented with regard to how fat phobia is implemented is one of the manifestations and you, you talk about an example with your gym teacher who embarrassed you on a regular basis when you were a teenager. First, can you tell us what happened, um, what the gym teacher would have you do? Absolutely. So I was an elementary school student, and I had begun taking steroids to treat asthma. And so my body became 
much larger really, really quickly. I developed really quickly. And so he began to surveil me. If at lunchtime I wanted to sit down and read a book, he would force me to participate in whatever games were happening with other students at that time, whether it was tetherball or kickball. When we were in gym class, he would require me to run extra laps. And the way that he framed it to me was that he was looking out for me and he wanted what was best for me. I found that so interesting. The impact of people who, quote unquote, mean well. Uh, You've really thought a lot about the way that people respond when someone loses weight. What are some of the most common experiences? And you yourself have experienced this now, too, directly as a result of your the strict diet you're on with your heart failure diagnosis and hypertension diagnosis. Yeah. So as a result of taking those medications, I have lost a significant amount of weight. And the response that I have received and the way that I have internalized that is that if losing weight is the consequence of being sick, then being sick is worth it. And that comes across in the way that we treat I speak a lot in the book about the way we treat celebrities, women's bodies in terms of if Adele, for instance, loses a large amount of weight because she got a divorce and it was harming her nervous system, then it's worth it. Then that divorce is worth it. And I always know that people don't intend to be malicious when they compliment someone for weight loss. But my advice always to people is never to comment about the size of someone's body because you never know what is the underlying fuel for why their body is the way that it is. Yeah. The other part of what was striking about that story of your PE teacher is the impact that you say of surveillance. What do you mean by surveillance of children at a very young age with regard to their size? Right. So young people in our society, particularly young fat people, young fat children, are encouraged to be surveilled. So recently, the American Academy of Pediatrics released guidelines that say that if a child is considered obese under the age of 12, they should be given weight loss medication. And if they are over the age of 13, they should be considered for weight loss surgery. But the only way to figure that out is if that child is being constantly weighed, if their BMI is being measured, if that is coming from the school, say, at the beginning of the year when I was in school, we would have a fitness test and all of that information would be given to my parents and to my doctor. And so that level of what is that child eating, what size are they, how much are they gaining or losing, leads to a point where that child no longer feels like their body belongs to them and that until they are thinner, that will continue to be the case. What effect did it have on you? It made me feel like my body did not belong to me. And at that particular time, because I had become so much larger so quickly, I was really unaccustomed to being surveilled in that way. And I am grateful that I had parents who really resisted that. But whether I was in school and teachers were monitoring what I was eating or I was going to the doctor and all my doctors talked about was my weight gain, it became the sum of my identity of I am this big and I need to be smaller. How do I make that happen? 
Hmm. This listener tweets, I've noticed as I age, doctor's attention to my physical well-being decreases drastically. And if you're older and fat, forget about it. Do you see that intersection of ageism and fatness? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things I have learned in going through my heart failure journey is that the older you are, the less treatment you are able to receive for cardiac problems. So if you are above a certain age and say you experience heart failure and you need to have an artificial heart placed in, if you are above a certain age, you are not considered a candidate. And if you combine that with the size of the body, it makes you even less eligible. If you are above a certain age and need a heart transplant, you are not considered a good candidate and are not eligible for a new heart because the thought is that your life is over and that you have given all that you can give and that they preserve hearts and heart transplants for younger people. And if you are plus size in addition to that, it makes you even less eligible for the care that you need. Mm-hmm. You, while also talking about it shouldn't have to be this way, you have recommended ways that people can ensure their doctors are treating their health issues, their medical conditions, instead of their size and not being blinded by their size. What are some of the things you've learned about how to do that? Oh, of course. So one of the things that I encourage everyone to do and something that I've learned is to get what we call a health at every size doctor. And these doctors are particularly trained to recognize fat bias in treatment and to resist it. So that's one of the ways in which people can approach that and one of the ways I have approached it. Another way is to be very clear with the doctor that you are not interested in being weighed. So often it seems so normal to go into the doctor's office and have your blood pressure checked and have your temperature checked and get weighed. Unless you were undergoing a medical procedure that could be dictated by your weight, such as something that would require anesthesia, there is no actual reason for you to be weighed. So that's another way in which you can advocate for yourself. And then lastly, I recommend calling in if you're going, say, to see your primary care doctor, you can call in a day before, a week before, and just make it clear that you do not want to talk about weight loss during your appointment. And if you come across a doctor who's unwilling to respect those boundaries, then sometimes it's okay okay to say, I need a different or a new doctor. Yvette Dion is a journalist, editor, and pop culture critic. Her new book is Weightless, and your listeners are invited to join the conversation. Post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Comment via email, forum at kqed.org. Call us, 866-733-6786. Aaron writes, the billion-dollar fashion, beauty, and fitness industries profit from the myth that only certain types of bodies are desirable in our society. Those bodies are overwhelmingly white, cisgendered, heteronormative, able, and fit. Bodies falling outside these artificial narrow constructs are deemed lacking, forcing people to seek redemption in the gym and the mall. How much valuable time, energy, and money gets wasted filling the pockets of destructive, judgmental people? You have as a culture critic, have really looked at the ways that our our media, <laughs> uh, the culture that we consume, film and TV, that they often have these 
very insidious messaging, just like the diet um, and weight loss industry that Aaron is talking about here. You also call out two specific sort of formulaic ways that fat people are cast. One is vengeful manipulators and the other is helpful misfits. What are vengeful manipulators? How does that show up? And, And then also helpful misfits. So the vengeful character shows up in a character who loses a large amount of weight and then decides to enact revenge on those who tormented them or treated them poorly. We've seen this um, in television shows such as Netflix's Insatiable, where you have a character who, as a result of being punched in the face because she's fat and she's tormented and has been bullied, once she loses weight as a result of having her jaw wired shut from being punched, decides to enact revenge on all of her tormentors. So that's that example of that. And then the hopeful misfit is typically the friend to a thin character. They don't really have their own plot lines or their own character arc. And they're just there to give that thin character confidence, to reinforce that they are the status quo at the expense of themselves. So you rarely see them have partners or families or their own friends or anything outside of just being there for that thin character. Do you feel like... We're starting to make progress on this front in film and television. Clearly, there's a lot of work still left to do. But I wonder if you see areas where you can point to to characters that feel like they're varying <laughs> these, these different identities um, that people are so frequently cast into. Absolutely. I think a lot about Queen Latifah's character on The Equalizer, um, who is basically a superhero who is helping the the less served solve crimes and things that are plaguing their lives. Or even Lindy West, um, who is also a writer, had a show on Hulu called Shrill that really broke the mold when it comes to fat characters. I also don't think it's a surprise that both of the creators of those shows, Lindy West and Queen Latifah, are plus size people who understand the way these stereotypes impact fat people and are intentionally trying to break them. So I do think there has been progress and there is more progress to be made, hopefully. Yeah, a lot of people have pointed out how The character Kelly, played by Natasha Rothwell on Insecure, is progress. But I was also struck by how there's also this part of her that you feel like plays into certain ideas, stereotypes, or fatphobic things that that we may miss while we're celebrating, you know, certain representation of Black characters in media. Absolutely. And to be honest, it was difficult to make that critique because I deeply enjoyed that show. I absolutely love Insecure. I just finished a rewatch, actually. I absolutely love that show. And And that definitely came through (laughs) that you loved it. Yeah, yeah. I really do. And also this particular character within a show about comedy is framed as comedic relief. Mm. So she only exists to be in service to her friends. She's only the comedic relief. And it isn't until the final season when she's accidentally killed off by her school during a school reunion that they give her a fuller character arc. So you see her fall in love at the end of the show. She's pregnant. But up until that point to get there, she's 
she is framed as the desperate friend who only exists for comedic relief. Well, the listener writes, look at maternity issues too, ageism, fat issues, misogyny, racism. Medicine has some real issues that interfere with getting good medical care. No wonder so many people are skeptical of doctors. I want to ask you about the fat acceptance movement and fat liberation. I'm reminded of this as we're talking about on-screen narratives because one of the things that you write about is how fat acceptance activists want a world where where people of size on screen are not in narratives that center on their weight. That's just one thing, though. I'm wondering if you could talk about what the fat acceptance movement or fat liberation is because I think you've said that you find that it's often misunderstood. Like, what are the most common misconceptions around it? The most common misconception around fat acceptance in particular is that it's the same thing as body positivity. It is not. Body Mm. positivity is really individual focused. So it's about how do you feel about your body and how do we create clothing and magazine covers and put models um, at the forefront of this movement to encourage people to feel better about themselves. That serves a different purpose than fat acceptance, which is about legislation, honestly. It's about movement building. It's about trying to create a world that's more equitable for fat people as it relates to, say, workplace discrimination or the ability to get on a plane or dieting advertisements. That's a completely different realm entirely. Mm, So institutional changes. You talk about how Michigan, I think you say, is the one state to pass a size discrimination law? It's only Michigan. They're the only state in which it is prohibited to discriminate against a fat person in the workplace. It is legal in every other state. And you see that directly linked to the efforts of fat acceptance activists? Absolutely, from the 1970s, yes. Hmm. Again, we're talking with Yvette Dion, and if you want to join your conversation, if you have thoughts or reactions to what Yvette Dion is saying, the stories, what they're bringing up for you, how you think our institutions can change to counter fat phobia, email forum at kqed.org, call us 866-733-6786, or post your thoughts as you are doing on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about fat phobia this hour, how it's embedded in our culture, the impact it has on us all, but particularly on fat people. We're talking with Yvette Dion, who has written a new book called Weightless, Making Space for My Resilient Body and Soul. Dion is a journalist and an editor and a pop culture critic who has also written the book We Climb, Black Women's Battle for the Ballot Box, which was nominated for a National Book Award. Yvette Dion, you write this very compelling essay about reality TV in Weightless, and I really want to talk to you about that essay on the show My 600-Pound Life, which you describe as two hours of TV that is essentially designed to humiliate. Um, but you say that this show nonetheless became appointment TV for you. First, for our listeners who may not have seen it, what can you tell us about this show? Sure. So My 600 Pound Life is a TLC reality television show, and it follows um, patients who are quote-unquote morbidly obese. So each of them weighs more than 600 pounds. They've had patients who weigh as much as 1,000 pounds on the show, and you follow them in their quest to lose weight um, and go through an intense bariatric program with Dr. Yunan Nalzardin, who is based in Houston. And so you follow them through one year of their life if they are in the first part of the show, and then a second year of their life if they do the follow-up program, where are they now? Hmm. And so why did this become appointment TV for you? It wasn't originally appointment television for me. But when I was living with my parents when I became ill, my mom watched it religiously. Mm. And what often happens when you're sharing a household with someone is that they what they like becomes what you like as well. And so I ended up watching one episode and I was hooked. And a large part of that is because of the way that it is edited. It is designed to be really compelling and really entertaining, even in just what the patients say in the way they interact with the doctor and what the doctor says and just watching their journey is really, really compelling. Yeah. So what are some of the thoughts that you have had about the people that they feature as you've watched that show? Right. So you're basically invested in whether or not this person loses the amount of weight that they need to have bariatric surgery. And so my response has ranged from being really, really happy and joyful when I see that one of the patients has lost the weight and they're doing well to feeling disgusted by the way that they are dieting or what they are eating or the way that they talk to their family or the way they talk to the doctor, to being really sad. There have been patients on the show who have died in the process of filming the show. And often you don't know that until the end of the episode when they say, oh, and at this point this person died. That has made me really sad. And so I've gone through the range of emotions while watching the show. Yes, the range of emotions. The other thing that you've done is kind of excavated and interrogated what you saw showing up as you watched the show as your own internalized fat phobia. First, 
just to engage in that process, I imagine must have been really hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was really, really difficult because I am really active in fat acceptance and fat liberation spaces. And so I actually know better than to watch this show and contribute to the ratings of a show that is designed to humiliate fat people. It's no different than, say, The Biggest Loser or My Thousand Pound Sisters or any other show that is framed to humiliate fat people. I know better than to be watching it. And yet when I'm watching it, I develop this sense of superiority in terms of, oh, I've never been that fat. I'm still mobile. I'm able to get around. I have a partner. I can take care of myself. It allows me to have this disassociation almost between being a fat person, having these experiences of fat phobia and saying, well, at least I'm not that fat. Yeah. You also have this really powerful um, paragraph where you describe where you feel like you're actually siphoning another fat person's energy by the way that you are sort of creating distance between yourself and a person who is bigger. You write on the rare occasion when I'm not the largest person in the room, when I size everyone up and gleefully notice someone bigger than me, it imbues me with a wicked false confidence. Now there's someone else to focus their attention on. I no longer have to be a wallflower because someone else can fill that role now. In these moments, I siphon that other fat person's energy. Suddenly I have an effervescent buoyancy and I feel confident enough to socialize, to speak to strangers, to put my shoulders back, hold my head high and own a room. You you talk about how you could see that being screenshotted, you could see that being used against you at some point for some reason, but why did you feel like, regardless, it was still so important to share that and be honest about that? Well, so often, particularly as body positivity has become more prominent, it's really common language now to say that you're body positive. There is this cultural assumption that that means that all fat people share the same politics and the same political commitments and that we have all unlearned fat phobia. And I think that strips fat people of our complexity of the ways in which we differ in terms of our ideologies. And so I wanted to be really clear and complicate that narrative that although I've gone on this unlearning journey. I am not perfect. And no other fat person involved in fat acceptance or body positive movements are either. And that we should be given the grace and the respect and the time to continue that unlearning journey, that we will stumble, we will get it wrong. And that doesn't mean that we're any less committed to unlearning fat phobia and to dismantling a fat phobic world than those who are, what I say, are on a moral high ground. Yeah. Did you ever think about not putting it in? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the last essays that I wrote, honestly. Um, It might have been the last, in fact, because I I wavered a lot about whether to include it. But I knew this book wouldn't be honest if I didn't. Hmm. We we talked about how it is hard. It takes a lot to be that honest. It actually takes a lot of self-love and self-acceptance. And in many ways, this book is about that journey that you're on. I'm wondering what what self-care 
looks like for you what what self love how how that um how that shows up for you after my diagnosis and after having to develop a really clear relationship with my body so I could understand what was happening to it and what was going on on a day-to-day basis I now listen really, really, really closely to my body. That is what self-care looks like to me. If I am tired, I rest. If I'm feeling tension in my shoulders and in my back, I'm like, okay, I may need to go to yoga. Or if it's more extreme than that, okay, I need to go and get a massage. If I have overworked myself, I stop working. It really has helped me recenter myself and say that I am the most important thing in my life. I want to be here. And so self-love and self-care looks like doing whatever my body needs me to do in order to be here and to be present and to allow my body its very best chance to recover. Because honestly, that's what it's all about. Yes, to be here because to be here, the recognition that to be here helps others. That's one of the things that I sort of kept hearing in some of the interviews is that one of the things that inspired your own self-love or recognition of yourself and your value is by thinking about others and your impact on others. Would that be accurate? That's absolutely accurate. I know I, I get messages and emails and DMs from people all the time who say, hey, I also have heart failure. I also have pulmonary hypertension. I've had to freeze my eggs. I've had fibroids. And I know that because I've been blessed with a platform that I'm able to really give voice to these experiences to remind people that that they are not alone. And that feels worth it, especially on the days when, and heart failure is really, really hard. There are days when it's hard for me to get out of the bed even now. I know that giving voice to these experiences allows people to know that they're in community and they don't have to go through this alone, and that makes it feel worth it. Kim writes, the medical community often uses a BMI range that is not appropriate for all ethnic groups. For instance, I believe the Pacific Islander demographic should have their own BMI range. I thought the recommendation to tell your provider ahead of time you do not wish to discuss weight was spot on. I've had a lot of patients tell me they avoid visits because of the prospect of discussing weight. It is a counterproductive conversation if the patient is not ready to discuss it. I am also suspicious of a provider who will weigh a patient but not measure them. Too many patients develop osteoporosis with loss of height, and this can end up negatively impacting health more than being overweight. Another listener writes, Is this an actual type of doctor, the doctor of all weights? I think this is what you mentioned earlier. That is amazingly wonderful. Please ask the guest to say the name of that type of doctor. What kinds of doctors should they look for again, Yvette? A health at every size doctor. A health at every size doctor. We are talking with Yvette Dion, and her book is Weightless, Making Space for My Resilient Body and Soul. We're also talking with you, our listeners, about how fat phobia is embedded in our culture and how we can fight it. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Linda writes, I'm 56 years old. In high school, my PE teacher, Ron Weiss, made me put ankle weights on and had me run down to the tennis court and back. He said, this is like the extra weight you are carrying around in front of the whole class, scarred for life. 
and I remember his name and that day perfectly 40 years ago. Thanks for putting fat shaming out there. I'm sorry that happened to you, Linda. Wow. A listener asks, how do you define fat phobia? Do you have a specific definition that you often share, Yvette? Um, that prioritizes thin people at the expense of fat people. And so it's no different than a system like racism that prioritizes, say, white people at the expense of, of all other marginalized groups. It's very much that same system. Well, John writes, no one should be shamed over their health status. But what's wrong with wanting someone, especially a school child who is forming life habits, to take better care of their bodies? Taking care of oneself seems like a great alternative to a life of surgeries and constant medical care. What do you say to John, Yvette? To that, I say that obesity is not as simple as dieting and exercising. There has been now uh, a whole wealth of research about the fact that often obesity is genetic. And so the statistic right now that they are um, kind of poking at and prodding at is that if your parents are overweight, the likelihood that your child will be overweight is between 50 and 80 percent. And so you can encourage children to eat well. You can encourage children to exercise for their sake, but not for the sake of them losing weight. Everybody's body is different, and that's okay. You have said that you really want people to feel optimistic about the possibility of creating a new world for fat people. Why do you want them to feel optimistic? What gives you optimism? Oh, being a student of history honestly gives me so much optimism that a better world is possible. I say all the time that one hope is a discipline, which is a phrase that I've learned from abolitionist organizer Miriam Kaba. And I can't imagine how, say, suffragists felt after um, 1913 when they were fighting and they were fighting for the right for women to vote. And it still took another seven years after their march on Washington for that to happen. Or how civil rights movement organizers felt on that Selma Bridge. I've seen that the arc of history bends towards justice. And I've seen that it's possible with the right amount of organizing and lobbying and optimism and movement building. Anything that we desire to be built can be built. And so that gives me hope that if I've seen um, movement organizers do it in the past, then it can be done in this present. Hmm. Well, Rebecca tweets, internalized fat phobia is a lifelong battle. Just last night, my son asked me why I pulled my pants up so high. I said, because if I don't, my belly hangs out. And he said, he's a smart kid. But if you're not ashamed about being fat, why do you care? I really had no good response. You, I heard you uh, there, Yvette. Thoughts for Rebecca? Internalized fat phobia is a lifelong journey. It really is. I struggle with it right now today, and I've written a whole book about it. It is really, really difficult. And what I say to plus-size people who are navigating that is to give yourself a lot of grace and a lot of space because it's normal in the society that we live in. And so the next step often after unlearning is what I call a somatic practice. So figuring out a somatic practitioner who can help you be in touch 
with your body and really be present with your body. And that sometimes can help, but it is normal to feel that way and to navigate that. And there's nothing wrong with feeling that way. And it's even harder when you're cognizant that you shouldn't be feeling that way and Hmm. you still are. But grace and space is important. Mary Jane writes, I'm a therapist in Oakland and talk to so many people about the difficulty of finding primary care providers who embrace health at any size. Their website hasn't had doctors listed in the Bay Area. It's frustrating that in such a progressive area, it's still so hard to find a provider. It's so difficult for people to advocate for themselves around weight when the very real worry about getting shamed keeps people from getting care. So yes, another area where there is work to do. You were talking about history giving you optimism, but I'm wondering if you could, we talked a little bit about some of the signs maybe in terms of representation that tells us or at least points us to the possibility that we're moving toward a new world for fat people, as you say. But what are some other signs um, that, that you feel are out there that we haven't talked about yet, that we are creating a new world for fat people? I think the fact that a book like Weightless can exist and that there is now a canon of other books that I owe so much to who have done a lot of that groundwork, I think that is really a positive sign that the world could be ready for this sort of messaging. The fact that we could have a whole interview about it and about the ways that fat phobia and fat shaming show up and have so many of your listeners say, I've experienced that. This is what has happened to me. It's a sign that people are ready to begin toward that movement building, that they're ready for a new world. I now receive far fewer messages that say fat phobia doesn't exist than I do saying I've experienced this. My child has experienced this. My parent has experienced this. And I think if we're able to come together and organize together around what are the things that we care about as a community, it can happen. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm very hopeful that it can. Ami writes, we lost my uncle, my mom's brother and best friend who was extremely active, who'd been trying to get medical tests and attention for the extreme pain he was experiencing and kept being told he needed to lose weight. We threatened a lawsuit for him to get diagnostic tests, so Kaiser gave in and found he had terminal cancer throughout his body. Mm. We lost an angel. When you say the medical issues connect the dots, you are so right, and they really struck a chord with our listeners. Thank you, Yvette Dihan. Thank you. It's Weightless, making space for my resilient body and soul. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.